Well, today we are, we're going to conclude this series on some basic Bible doctrines, the DNA of our faith. We're going to conclude with a little um, ecclesiology, which is, to, which is to study what the Bible says about the church. The church is an all-important subject. What is it? Who is it? You know, what is its purpose? What is the church's purpose in the world? You know, one man said the church fulfills four roles in his life. There's four times that people turn to the church. He said, when you're hatched, when you're patched, when you're matched, and when you're snatched. He said, those four times you turn to the church. Well, I hope that by the time we finish this message, you um, will gain a little broader perspective than, than that of what the church is. So we're going to jump right in. Let's begin, first of all, with the meaning of the word church. The meaning of the word church. Now, throughout the New Testament, the church is defined by two Greek words. There's two Greek words um, that define the word church. The primary word is basically a compound word, ekklesia. That's the Greek word. And it's formed by the preposition um, ek, meaning out. You know, is where we get our word exit. And uh, kaleo, which means called. So ekklesia literally means called out. We are called out. So a church is those who have been called out. Now, ecclesia was a, a common Greek word for any public assembly. So you see that mentioned a lot that way. Whenever any group um, was called out of daily life for a special purpose, that assembly was called an ecclesia. And most of the time, in secular literature... Um, and only three times in the Bible, ecclesia is translated as assembly. Um, but 80 out of the 83 times, ecclesia appears um, in the Greek New Testament, is translated by our scholars, church. So that's where we get that. So the word church has become uniquely um, associated with a Christian assembly. Now, Whenever you and I, when we read the church, word church in the scriptures, we have to determine from the, from the text there whether it's a reference to the church universal, like worldwide, or whether it, the word, that word church is describing the smaller local church there, that community church. So we have to kind of figure out which one it's using. But whether we're speaking of all Christians throughout the world, or these smaller groups that represent the church in particular cities, you know, those assembly, um, all of those whom God has called out of the world. The church is all of those who God has called out of the world. Folks, we are only a true church if we, if its members are truly called out. We're called out of the world. Now, the second New Testament word, um, is often used to describe the church, is koinonia. Um, and that's usually translated fellowship or partnership. You know, where ecclesia defines us by our relationship with the world, koinonia defines us by our relationship with one another or to one another. Koinonia, it describes a people called together. See, a people living in a community with a congregation that we've been yoked together 
by God as partners for the Lord's business. That's koinonia. Koinonia basically describes people in intimate relationships, sharing life and, and working together for a common cause. So a church then, we have to come to the conclusion, is a fellowship of people who've been both called out of the world and into a community with one another. And that's what we are as a church. As ecclesia, we are called out. As koinonia, we've been called together. Now, God knows that a picture paints a thousand words. It's a whole lot easier for us to understand things when a picture is painted and described and explained to us. So in His Word, God has given us several pictures that we might fully understand what we've been called to be and what we've been called to do as a called out, called together people, the church. And this morning, what I want to do is review some of these metaphors of the church. First of all, the most common metaphor used by Christ is that of the church is the kingdom of God. Now, on Sunday nights, we're going through that study about the kingdom of God. So if you're interested in that, please come, come out on Sunday nights. But over and over throughout the scriptures, Jesus spoke of the kingdom, a holy nation, um, under the sovereign authority of kingship or almighty God. And this is a nation, and Woody talked about that this morning. This is a nation not defined by natural boundaries, but by, it's defined by a confession of faith. So this kingdom is defined by confession of faith. We are the kingdom of God. It's not defined by boundaries, land and landmarks and, and such. And over and over in the scriptures, Jesus, he told us how to enter the kingdom. He told us how to live in the kingdom. And he told us how to honor the king. He said in Matthew 5 in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he began many of his teachings with the phrase, and you can recall this, the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. You know, he's painting these pictures for us so that we can see what the kingdom of heaven is like. And all the apostles, they propagated or they promoted or they spread this understanding of, of the church as God's kingdom. For an example... Um, to the church in Ephesus. Paul, he wrote this in Ephesians, the second chapter, in verse 19. He says, You are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. And then in Colossians, the first chapter, in verse 13, he said to the church at Colossae, God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of of the Son He loves. And because you and I are now citizens of His heavenly kingdom, pledged to honor His sovereignty, it says in First Peter, the second chapter in verse 11, it says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in this world to abstain from sinful desires which war against you. You see, for us to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, we must renounce our world citizenship. We can't belong to two 
two different kingdoms. We have to internalize one of the old hymns that's my favorite. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Folks, what a truth that is. When we sing that song, maybe we didn't even realize how, how awesome that is. 2 Corinthians in chapter 5, in verse 20, it tells us that, um, that here on earth, we are to be ambassadors for Christ. Now think about this. Our king has given us the mission and the responsibility of representing and speaking for him in this world. How awesome is that? Man, that, that, you think about that, that is something. And with that said, listen to this. The kingdom of God, we're talking about the church here, you and I, the kingdom of God is not a democracy. It's a theocracy with Christ as the head. But the kingdom of God is not a democracy. There's many churches thinks that it is. They will vote on things. Um, you know, is sin really a sin? And it's like they're taking the place of God. They can't do that. You know, I mean, they do, but they shouldn't because the kingdom is not a democracy. You see, kingdoms have kings. And our king is the Lord Jesus Christ. So the church must always submit itself to the king's will. That's the way kingdoms work. You know, it is not the task of church leaders to carry out the will of the congregation. And it's not the task of leaders to even carry out, you know, their own desires um, or what they think's best. But the, the pressing responsibility of church leaders is to discern and implement the will of the king. That's the way a kingdom works. The second prominent biblical metaphor um, is the church is God's flock. In John, the 10th chapter, verse 11, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then in verse 14, he says, I am the good shepherd, I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Folks, the church is God's flock. The Lord is our shepherd. Now, the church as God's flock, it's a beautiful image. But let me tell you something. It's not a very flattering one all the time. Think about this. Basically, sheep are dumb, smelly animals. Um. Left to themselves, they will wander and often danger. They'll die of malnutrition or they're very vulnerable to, to thieves or the ravages of wild animals, wolves and such. Sheep need a shepherd to protect them, to provide for them, and to discipline them. They need someone to lead them beside still waters and restore their soul. They need someone to follow. And friends, that's you and I. We are the sheep. We need a leader, you know. And again, church leaders, um, pastors, they must understand that their task is to assist the good shepherd not to take his place. You see, they're to represent exactly what God does. 
Um, we are the sheep of His flock, and Jesus is our good shepherd. That's the way that works. First Peter chapter 5 and uh, verse 2 and following. It, you know, it says of the, el- uh, of the elders of local churches, it says, be shepherds of God's flock that you... Um, that are under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Not lording over those entrusted to your care, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Thirdly, We move over to John, the 15th chapter. Jesus described the church's relationship to him with the beautiful metaphor of the branches. Um, On Sunday nights, we often call these kids' courses, we sing that, you know, um, you are the vine, we are the branches. We are the sheep, you are the shepherd. How much more biblical can you get than that? You know, we say those are kids' songs, but how true are they? You know, that's basic stuff. That's what we need to know. Now, Jesus is the vine, you know, but we are each attached branches to that vine. Every member of the church draws his or her life and spiritual nourishment from Christ. I know in verse 5, the last, very last part of verse 5, Jesus said, Apart from me, you can do nothing. And how true is that? And then in verse 6, If anyone does not remain in me, He is like a branch that is thrown away and withered. Now, I want you to notice something here. Um, The metaphor of the kingdom, the flock, and the branches, they all have one thing in common. And that is they all depict our utter dependence upon the king, upon the shepherd, and the vine. Folks, as sheep, we are dependent upon someone to lead us. The fourth biblical, me- uh, or, or a fourth biblical uh, metaphor is the church as God's holy temple. Now Ephesians, the second chapter, verses 20 through 22. We are God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become holy temple, a holy temple. And in Him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. You see, a temple is a sanctuary, a place where God is worshipped, a place where He lives. So whenever we refer to this building of, of brick and mortar as a church, or if we speak of this room with carpet and pews as the sanctuary, we really misspeak. Because it's not, Woody did a wonderful job this morning telling us that. Because we are His church. We are His sanctuary. God lives and is worshipped in us. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, it says, You, God's people, are like living stones being built into a special house to be a holy priesthood, um, offering special sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, as a stone, each of us must rest upon the sure foundation of the apostles and the prophets' teaching 
you know, as revealed in Scripture. I know builders, they'll tell you, you got to get the first one right. That first stone has got to be right. And you build from that. You know, you got to have the right start. So that stone, Jesus, is that cornerstone. And He's the one that we get our strength and our encouragement and our instruction from. He's the one where we get our alignment from. You know, in every aspect of our lives and relationships with, with one another, we must receive our alignment from the life of Jesus who is represented by that cornerstone, you see. But together, we're an ever-growing temple of God. He abides in us. You know, the Bible tells us in Psalms, the 22nd chapter, the Lord inhabits the praises of His people. Folks, though the Spirit is given to each of us individually, something special, something magical happens whenever God's people assemble together in His name. We've seen that. We've, we've been held from meeting together, you know, recently here. How much more special is it when we get together? We can't even describe it. I mean, it's just, it's like nothing we can describe. It's just wonderful that we can get together. It's encouraging. It's uplifting. You see, in Matthew 18, Jesus said, um, wherever two or three are gathered together in my name, I will be in your midst. And though God is everywhere, you know, at all times, when those who don't know Him enter into His assembly, they should feel an experience, they should feel and experience His presence in a unique and wonderful way. And I can't help but think that they would do that. If we are representing Jesus Christ and we come together, Ecclesia, that church, and we're together. Someone from the outside that's not a Christian comes in and joins us. Can you imagine what that does to them? Can you imagine how they feel? You know, 1 Corinthians 14, um, in verse 24 and following, it basically tells us, if we are worshiping properly when we gather, the unbeliever among us will come under conviction, the secrets of his heart will be laid bare, and he will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Folks, the church is his holy temple. Fifthly, the church is the bride of Christ. I know you've heard that term before. The church, you know, basically the Bible tells us that the gift of the Holy Spirit is our is like our engagement ring. You know, it is a promise, it is a deposit, it is a guarantee that the Lord will someday um, take us into His presence and will cherish us for all eternity. Over in the book of Revelation, it speaks of a great wedding feast, you know, that will occur as eternity begins. Well, in Ephesians, the fifth chapter, in verse 22, it basically tells us that earthly husbands are to love their wives just as Jesus loves His bride, the church. And earthly wives are to submit to and respect um, their husbands just as um, the church is to submit and respect Christ. And then in verse 26, it says, Even now the Lord is working to make His church holy, cleansing her by washing 
by the washing with water through the word to prevent her or to present her um, to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Folks, today, as the Lord speaks to us through his word, his desire is to prepare us to be that radiant, to be that pure, to be that holy bride ready for that great wedding feast. That's what he's doing to prepare us. Now, this metaphor, it describes the church's intimate love relationship with Jesus. Think about this for a moment. In human terms, there is no way we could ever be closer. You know, there is no way we could, there, you know, there's no way that he could express to us greater love or value than to take us as his own bride. Think about that. When you took a bride, everything was in it. You were all in to take that bride. You know, what a love that was. And so we who have said yes to Jesus, we have an obligation to love and to honor and to obey him. You know, we are to serve him with all of our strength. We are to willingly place ourselves under His loving leadership as the head of our family. You know, as our husband, the Lord is our provider. He is our protector. And He is our priest. We need to see it that way. These pictures that Jesus is painting of the church, you know, it's hard to miss how important it is. And finally, number six here, um, there is the church as the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 27 says, You are the body of Christ, and each of you is a part of it. You know, some of us may be hands, some of us may be feet, some of us may be ears or, or eyes, but together, all working together, we are the body of Christ. And for the body of Christ to listen and to go and to see and to touch others, each member must find his or her function. In other words, we can't just sit here dormant. You can't be like the lady said, I've sat on the same pew for 40 years and I haven't hatched anything yet. We can't be that way. We have to be busy. You see, Ephesians, the fourth chapter, verse 16, from him who is the head, that is Christ, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. You know, there are many implications to the church as the body of Christ. First of all, you know, we see the dependency on each member, the dependency on Jesus Christ. We also see the interdependent relationships within the body. Stop and think about it. As you look around just our local church here, um, the, the church is a place where there's great diversity. You know, diversity of background, diversity of function, diversity of roles, and yet we are all united in purpose to honor and serve the Lord. Every one of us. We all work together to achieve that end. But folks, the greatest implication here is that we that we must recognize is this 
Today, Jesus, He reaches, He touches, and He ministers to people through His church, His body. You see, everything that Jesus did while He was on earth in flesh, the teaching and the healing of the body and the mind and the soul and relationships and proclaiming freedom to those that were held captive by by sin and death, that's what we're to do. That's what we are supposed to do. We are God's hands and God's feet in this world. Today it's, it's through our lives and it's through our ministry and it's through our relationships that God incarnates Himself. Meaning that He makes Himself real and known to people that are not Christian. Folks, we are God's only plan. There is no plan B. This is His plan right here. Now I want you to watch number three, point number three. This nation of priests, this, nation, this flock of God, this plant, this living temple, this pure and radiant bride, the body of Christ has been given by its king and its shepherd and its vine and its cornerstone, its groom and its head, three great mandates as God's agent for calling men out of this world and into um, His fellowship, we do three things. We exalt, we evangelize, and we equip. We exalt, we evangelize, and equip. You know, as a church, we exist to exalt the Savior. We exist to evangelize the lost or the seeker. We exist to equip the saints. Now just a brief comment about those. Now to exalt the Savior means to worship the Lord. You know, and it's absolutely our first mandate. In John the fourth chapter in verse 23, Jesus said, the Father is seeking true worshipers who will worship Him in spirit and truth. You know, the Lord, He's searching the earth for people who will worship or exalt Him with the enthusiasm and with the intensity and the passion of the Samaritans on Gerizim. And, and with the understanding and with the diligence and with the scholarship of the, of the Jews in Jerusalem. You see, God wants us to worship Him with both a clear mind and a full heart with both our intellect and our passion. And then the second thing, we talked about, then we're called to evangelize the lost or evangelize seekers. Now that word evangelize, it simply means to share good news. That's what it means, to share good news. Folks, the mission of the church, according to Matthew 28, is to go into all the world and make disciples. Make true disciples. We are His witnesses. We are to be God's light in a dark world. Proclaiming God's truth. Our mission is to share with everyone that God so loved this world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. That is the story that we need to share. And finally, according to Ephesians, the fourth chapter, verse 12, it is the particular task of church leaders to equip the saints. You know, that is all of God's people.
for works of service in order that the body of Christ might build itself up in love. So exalt, evangelize, and equip. Those are the three mandates of God's church. Folks, here's the bottom line. Nothing, nothing in your life, nothing in this world is more important, is more valuable, more essential than the church rising up and being and doing all that God has called her to be and do. There is nothing more important than that. See, the church of Jesus Christ is the only entity in the world that is truly empowered to bring salvation and transformation of lives and families and nations, both now and for eternity. So I would have to say this. There is no activity. There is no organization. There is no cause. There is no investment more precious or more worthy of your life, of your energy, and of your resources. In fact, when you view it from the perspective of eternity, everything else we do is just trivial when you think of that. Folks, please understand this. If you, by faith, have truly become a disciple of Jesus Christ, you are already a part of His church. But God has called you to participate in her life to help the church fulfill its mandates. You see, we don't just become a Christian and then go on our merry way. There's responsibilities of citizens of the kingdom. You see, you have been called out of this world into partnership with the rest of God's family. That's you and I working together as a church. Koinonia, ecclesia, that is you and I. You see, you are to be a citizen of His kingdom, a sheep in His fold, an attached branch to that vine, a stone in the temple, and a member of His bride and His body. And if you search every word of the New Testament, you will not find one example of any true follower of Jesus who did not also recognize his or her responsibility as a member of the local church. You won't find it. I probably said this before, but I'll say it again. Most of the New Testament was not written to individual people relating to God but rather it was written to biblical communities and congregations in various locations who were struggling together as a people, as a church, to walk with and to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the church of God, um, or the church is God's institution. It was God's idea, and it's His only plan. There is no other plan. Now today, the church is a much maligned institution. Um, it's often criticized by people. And many have just given up on the church. But the bottom line is this, or the problem is this. Most people have never even seen or even been a part of a healthy, authentic, biblical community 
a truly normal church. They haven't been. The problem is we've confused what the word normal means. Bob Moorhead said this, the church has been subnormal for so long, if it ever becomes normal, people will say it's abnormal. You see? How true is that, folks? We must understand the church has always been and still is the only hope of the world. So for the sake, for the world's sake, and for God's sake, we must quit playing church and start being the church. You know, I think every leader, every minister, every leader, every elder, deacons, you know, in their own mind, they have goals for what they would like to see the, 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 the church or a vision for the future of the church. And I want to share mine with you this morning. You know, and I want you to know it has nothing to do with our size. You know, we're going to let God worry about that because if we're doing our job, size is going to take care of itself. But the vision is to be an authentic biblical community. You know, a healthy, normal church where all the people get serious about being the salt and light that God has called us to be. You know, a church that will be relentless and pursue and accomplish normal things. And what I'm talking about, all the normal biblical things here that God's people are supposed to pursue and supposed to accomplish when they are filled with the power of God's Spirit. Wouldn't you like to see a church like that? Won't you be a part of it? Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you so much for the church. And as a church, Father, help us to be done with the sight walking and just low living and empty talking and tame plans. Father, help us to put on the coat of courage. Help us to flex our muscles with the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, I'm asking you to help us be the church that you would have us to be. Help each person to have that desire to say, I'm going to step up and do what I'm supposed to do. Father, we love you. We love the plan of the church. And Father, we know that if we remain faithful to that plan, we will see you one day with a smile on our face and live with you forever. But Father, we know that if we're not faithful to that plan, we'll see you one day, but it won't be with a smile because we'll have to listen to those words depart from me. Father, we know what we want to do. We just need to make up our mind to do it. Thank you for all things. In Jesus' name, amen.